0: I really think emotional sobriety is not an event, but it it comes to these inflection points where a person really is up against it. I really think that we need to support each other and ask for help when we find ourselves at an inflection point like that.
1: Bill Wilson, co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, wrote in 1952, if we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root some unhealthy dependence and its consequent demand. Wilson suggested that if we could identify and continually surrender these unrealistic and unrealizable demands that we may then be able to accomplish what he imagined to be the recovery's next frontier, something he called emotional sobriety. Flash forward 70 years and join psychotherapists and best-selling authors Tom Rutledge and Dr. Alan Berger. Who have taken up the mantle of exploring Bill Wilson's new frontier. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety.
2: Well, welcome everyone to Emotional Sobriety, the next step in your recovery. And uh, I'm sorry to say Tom Rutledge won't be joining us today, but I've got some great news for you. My dear friend and uh, just an incredible person, Tommy Rosen is joining us today. He's the author of Recovery 2.0 He's done a lot of work with helping people really look at the next step beyond addiction, right? And to take the next step in the recovery. And there's such a wonderful overlap between emotional sobriety and what you're doing, Tommy. Um, but before I check in with you, Patrick, good morning. Good
1: morning. Uh, we've got a backup, Tom, today.
2: We do have, we got Tom 2.0. Well, listen, without any further ado, Tom, why don't you introduce yourself to everybody and, and tell us what you've been doing?
0: Sure. Well, thank you, Alan, so much. Uh, I just love you and I love the work you're doing and uh, always grateful to uh, speak about this thing, which is so near uh, and, and dear to both of our hearts, uh, which is this thing called recovery, healing Wholeness, connection, love—whatever we want to call it—we're moving in that direction, uh, hopefully. And um, my, you know, my work comes out of my own suffering, really. Uh, as a, a person in long-term recovery, I experienced a lot of uh, addiction in my life: uh, drug addiction, uh, alcoholism, uh, cigarette addiction. Uh, let's not, let's not forget about codependency and sex. Let's not forget about gambling, money, debting. <laughs> Let's not forget about food and all the areas of human human uh, existence. I seem to have at one point or another in my life gotten caught up mm. and had to uh, move through and recover from those things. And in recovering from those things, there's also been a great realization, which is, I think, at the heart of this podcast and your work, which is that there is there is healing from, well, there is abstinence from addiction, uh, from an addictive behavior or from a substance. And then there is healing, recovery, uh, the next step, as you put it, and you refer to it as emotional uh, sobriety. And that's that's something that I think is ongoing. It's a path of discovery. It's It takes a lifetime. It's a one day at a time thing. And I've I've had to, like I think all of us on a path of recovery at some point, I, I face that realization that there is a lot more to life than just letting go of something. And so um, the Recovery 2.0 work has been about the integration of practices uh, from the world of yoga, meditation, breath work, diet, uh, immersions in nature, uh, recovery philosophy, 12-step philosophy, psychology, spirituality—all of these things coming together uh, to make an extraordinary life, and for someone to be able to uh, thrive in their recovery and thrive in the the different areas of their life.
2: Well, it's funny you use that word because it it does go from abstinence to healing to thriving. Right. And it really is. It's because once this journey starts, if you stay the course, and and I know you have, and I know you help a lot of people to stay the course, that you start to thrive, man. You start to actualize that potential that we all have to be what we can be, that gets so diverted, doesn't it? I mean, it really does. And when it attaches itself you know, that, you know, I say this all the time. It's a funny thing. This life force, you know, Dr. Kurt Goldstein talked about it. He was a neurologist and in, uh, in Germany, worked with a lot of brain damaged uh, men from World War I. And what he saw was this remarkable thing that even with the limitations they had because of the injury, right, and the cognitive impairment that followed those brain injuries, they were able to actualize whatever potential was available to the max. And he called that self-actualization. And he says, we all have it. He says, the problem is, is when it attaches itself to addiction, you become the best damn addict you can be. (laughs) I mean, there's no half measures, right? There's none. I I have not met a half ass addict. (laughs) I mean, we will go to any lengths. But the wonderful thing is, and this is the exciting thing about our work, is that when it attaches itself to recovery, stand by. Mm. You know, we're launched into that fourth dimension, aren't we?
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, in, in every case, uh, the people, you know, it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, as, as you well know, it says, you know, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly, thoroughly, you know, and, and that's, Actually, I was, I was at a meeting yesterday and I, I, um, I heard that um, sometimes you hear something as if with new ears yes, and you see something as if with new eyes. And that's how it was literally for me yesterday. I was reflecting and hearing that. I was like, wow, that's, that's really good news. Yeah. You know, like I wonder if people realize what good news that is, that rarely does someone fail if they thoroughly follow this path, these set of instructions Uh, which anyone, anyone can follow. And so, so there's good news. And, and since we are so, as you, as you spoke (laughs) so eloquently about our penchant for doing things wholeheartedly, (laughs) once we get into, you know, recovery, we have the capacity to do things wholeheartedly in the direction of healing and and abstinence healing and, and thriving, as you put it. So so this is very good news for people like us that we can uh recover and and heal and 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 experience a, a, an actualization.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think that's been the great contribution that you've brought to this discussion, Tommy, is really looking at this holistically.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, you know, a lot of we give a lot of uh, you know lip service to that concept but i'll tell you you've really created Mm -hmm. an experience for people that you really take that into account that you know all of us right like you said the mind body and soul right i mean and, and you listen, you, you need to be recognized for that. That's what mm-hmm. Recovery 2.0 is all about, man. It really is. And you've made a wonderful contribution to that. Because oftentimes you'll see one program emphasize one side, another program emphasize. And listen, unfortunately, they, they try to integrate that into treatment today. They bring in somebody to teach yoga or nutrition, but nobody puts it together and integrates it in the way that you're integrating it. Mm-hmm. So kudos to you, you. my friend. Kudos to you.
0: Thank you. Uh, I wanted to say something about your comment about treatment and and the teaching of yoga and presentation of yoga and treatment. I just wanted to, before I get to that, I wanted to uh, explain myself. I'm I'm not creating anything. I'm looking at my life and the challenges that I have. So for the last 31 years of my recovery here, I'm looking and I'm experiencing lots and lots of joy, lots and lots of challenge. And when I'm uncomfortable, challenged, uh, you know, in whatever way, physically, psychologically, spiritually, all of it, uh, existentially, when I'm in those places, I do what everybody else does too. I start looking for a way to solve the problem, to feel better, to be more adjusted each day to wake up, not with anxiety, but with joy and excitement and inspiration. And so because I'm looking, I've explored a lot of different things. And and one of the things that I've come to understand is the manner in which addiction works on us. And, And I, you know, the first thing that's obvious to anyone who's ever struggled with addiction is there does seem to be a mental affliction that goes along with it. We all know the feeling of being, for example, in a state of craving for something that we know is not going to go well. And so we're we struggling with ourselves. We are craving something that our highest self knows this is not gonna end well. And yet we feel that craving, whether that's generated because of a physical addiction, mental or emotional or spiritual aspect to it. But so addiction is working on the mental level, and we all know what that feels like. But then there's also this physical level Mm -hmm. that addiction works on. And I don't just mean like a physical addiction, like you might develop an addiction to an opiate, heroin, Oxycontin, Percocet, whatever the thing is. Yeah, the body works up a tolerance and a dependence, a physical dependence upon these substances, also in the case of methamphetamine, also in the case of alcohol, also in the case of cocaine, and a few other things. So clearly those physical addictions, we understand what that is, but the physical way that addiction works on us is at the level of the brain, the nervous system, the endocrine system, our hormonal system of the body, our drug use or, or addiction affects our gut biome. And we're learning so much now about how important that is. It affects our heart rate, our perspiration, our respiration. It affects everything right. physically. Yep. And then spiritually. Addiction robs us of the fulfillment of our longing for love. For connection to touch on the mystical to live an extraordinary life rather than to feel put upon by a mundane existence to feel like you have a sense of engagement and purpose in the world addiction robs us of all that so my point in all this is if addiction is working on us at the mental level the physical level and the spiritual level our response to it has to be holistic on all those levels. Otherwise we can't ever seem to get beyond it. If we're just, you know, if the, you know, in treatment today, there's a massive uh, emphasis on pharmacology yep. medication assisted treatment. It's, uh, it's not a black and white issue. I am certainly not anti-medication, but I do feel that it's a poor policy upon which to rest, your approach to recovery from addiction I don't think that should be the central policy why? because it's it, it tries to address the brain aspect of this the endocrine system nervous system aspect of this not addressing the psychological asset, uh, aspect in my opinion yeah. although it is changing the way a person you know experiences things it's not working on the physical it's not helping a person in in many ways that I think are necessary to really heal and recover. This is me. So that's a one-sided approach. We need a every-sided approach for yes. this. Thing. So that's where the work comes from. And finally, the the treatment thing that you had said. Um. I wanted just to say that treatment is front-loaded. We we go into a very safe environment with a very full schedule. We're protected and we are told what to do and we all we have to do is do it. And it can be very therapeutic and very helpful, but then we leave that cocoon. Yes. And so we, we haven't figured out that what now piece and that's why Recovery
2: 2.0. Yeah, no, and listen, that you know, there's a lot of talk today about the importance of, you know, building as much recovery capital as you can build. You know, and that consists of both our internal assets, like our degree of honesty, our commitment to the program, our emotional sobriety, you know, the degree to which that we have really accepted our condition and surrendered to it. Right. And our willingness to go to any length, so to speak. But also the the you know, there are external um, there's external recovery capital, you know, like being involved in a community. Right. You know, and having that support, having a great relationship with a mentor, a therapist or your sponsor, you know, someone like that and building that community, both internally and externally. And you're right. That's the what now part. Mm -hmm. You know, the the exciting thing is, i you know, there's an incredible, in fact, I'm going to be speaking in um, St. Louis next uh, week. There's these recovery capital foundations popping up all, all over the United States now. So they've they've go into these communities and the people from all different, you know, 12-step programs or all different, you know, issues in recovery come together and create this foundation where they start to create these community events for people to go and learn about different things in recovery. It's a great movement that's taking place because it's it's you know, it's doing what you did. And I think what I've done you know, I love what you said, you know, you really haven't brought anything. But what you've done is you've integrated so many things that have been helpful from your experience. Mm-hmm. And you're wonderful at your abilities to synthesize that. Mm-hmm. And I say this all the time. And I know you do it too. We stand on the shoulder of our of the giants before us. That's right. There's many of them. I mean, and, and see, that's the other thing I think that that I really like that you've done, Tommy, like I have, you know in my work i've brought in people from all different kind of approaches to psychotherapy and i find out what are some of the commonalities what are some of the things that relate to what bill wilson was talking about when he was talking about emotional sobriety and i see you doing that from disciplines that would have been outside of what people would have experienced, you brought that into our recovery community, mm-hmm. and people are finding great value, just like you did in your life, and just like I have in my life. Got it. I hope so. <laughs> well, they are, man. Oh, I, so. I, I I know a lot of people that that have experienced your work, and I've experienced through some of our workshops and stuff. And you're making a wonderful contribution. You really are.
1: Thank you, Alan. Thank you. And, and you still make time for meetings, as you said. Um, you know, as part of that integrative approach, um, you know, 12 step uh, kind of groups and a kind of fellowship of the more traditional order, you know, is part of the buffet, right? Yes.
0: Well, of course, you know, and I I just, I can't, I could never explain in in a short amount of time how misunderstood the 12 steps actually are. It, It is, it is one of the great, great treasure troves of our time it's applicable to anybody's life you know if you if you came to someone on the street and you said hey what do you think about honesty if you think that's an important thing for you in your life and your relationships you know <laughs> no no one is going to say no and then you if you said to them well what if what if there were a way to do a few things that you could do easily in a a short, relatively short amount of time that could help you to see more clearly, help you identify with your own truth more clearly. Would that be something of interest, you know, to you? (laughs) No one's gonna say no. Would you like to let go of anger and resentment? Do you think that would be a helpful thing along your path in your journey? Could you enjoy your life more if you did that? No one is going to say no. Do you think it would be an amazing thing to own the things that you've done, which have been hurtful to others and be able to build a bridge between you and the rest of humanity and and those individuals that you might've hurt and ultimately making yourself available to people where you could be of service to them and really help them in the same way others have helped you. No one is going to say no to these things. (laughs) And yet, if you say, well, that's the 12 steps, all of a sudden, they're going to be like, you tricked me. <laughs> you tricked me, <laughs> you know, it'll be like, oh, come on, that's not the 12 steps. The 12 steps are dogma and God and yeah. weirdness and church basements and smoking cigarettes and coffee. And that's the clearly, a
2: cult. clearly a cult, right? It's a clearly, cult, a...
0: You know, so it's it's just so misunderstood.
2: No, it is. In in, I think that that's so true that there's, there's a stereotype, right? That that goes with somehow God has become a four letter word, and when it's used in the steps, I mean, in my profession especially, the program is so criticized around the the word. If you start to look at some of the criticisms of AA is that the program is a cop-out because you don't take responsibility for your behavior because you say you have a disease. And Mm. I tell everybody, my experience is the opposite. I have never been so (laughs) responsible for my behavior and for my actions as I have in working the steps. And see, that's the ignorance people don't get. You are incredibly, I think I would say you're radically accountable. Mm who you are in the program, and that's what the steps do. There's an interesting thing that that I've been talking about now for about the last 15 years, I discovered it. I was reading a 12 and 12 again. And like you said before, right, you can read something or hear something, and for the first times, it's like with new ears or with new eyes, and you see it or hear it so differently. So I was reading step 12, um, and Bill says, I think it's at the end of the second paragraph when he's introducing step 12, he goes, that if we practice these principles in our daily affairs, that we and those about us begin to discover emotional sobriety. So he explicitly states, that's what this journey is about. This journey we are on is to, now then the question goes, well, what is emotional sobriety? I want to take us into this area. See, the way I've been talking about it, tommy lately is that it's a consciousness of freedom Mm. and i know that that i I, on your website you talk about that freedom and and that's what i see emotional sobriety as a uh, it's it's transitioning from a consciousness of a tethered self to a consciousness of an untethered self is the way i like to think about michael singer's work on the untethered soul is so right on and i just said well let's apply that concept to self for a minute you know, we are so tethered, our addiction tethers us, right? We're tethered to alcohol or whatever other drugs we're using or whatever substance or experience we're addicted to. The process starts to untether us from that and from a lot of these beliefs and ideas we have that are so grounded in an earlier level of development.
0: You know, relapse um, for people who have been sober for a little while, a relapse into, uh, you know uh, an addictive behavior, um, let's say you are a recovered alcoholic and then there's a relapse at some point back into drinking alcohol. If you look at that inflection point in a person's life, they came up upon an issue or a challenge or puzzle piece of their life, which presented challenge that knocked them out of their integrity. However long it took, they were unable to write that ship or to address or maybe be guided to the right sort of way forward to make progress, and it became painful for them. And they inevitably made their way to that uh, foggy way of thinking of, well, this is so painful or so uncomfortable or this is so protracted and so never-ending, it would make more sense to me to just drink. I should go back, um, which, of course, is not uh, recommended and not a uh, skillful means for moving through challenge, but we can certainly understand it. and I have a lot of compassion around people getting coming to an inflection point uh, where they have an opportunity to push through something. And I've been through this so much in my life around, you know, particularly uh, women, lust, sex, like that's a big one. Uh, money, career power, that's a big one. Um, physical challenges I, as I get older, that's that's a big one too, is there's a letting go process there and a surrender process there also. Um, and it's not sexy to talk about. And so we don't typically, you know, typically, I really think emotional sobriety is not an event, but it it comes to these inflection points where a person really is up against it. I really think that we need to support each other and ask for help when we find ourselves at an inflection point like that. Yes. Because we really, we really need each other and we can avoid a tremendous amount of pain uh, and suffering around Poor decisions under pressure.
2: No, your point is well taken. It's not something that we achieve, and then we set up a base camp there, right? <laughs> and then we live there. No, it doesn't happen. Like you said, there's moments in my life where I've achieved a certain level of emotional sobriety. But you know, I I think this is one of the things that I've kicked around a lot. It, it's kind of an amazing process how my level of development, wherever it is, is going to invite the next challenge to create an emerging opportunity. So, you know, let's say I'm coping with things in, you know, in a certain way. Well, that way is gonna have limitations, it's got to. I mean, cause I'm, I'm a limited person, right? I'm, I'm not infinite, I'm limited. I'm limited in my consciousness, I'm limited in, in my behavioral capacity and the resources I have. So inevitably, no matter how much I've raised my consciousness or my maturity, I'm gonna be confronted with a challenge that is beyond my current capability. And I, you, know, you were talking about the challenges we get. You know, in every one of those, you know, we we see an emerging opportunity. Now, the issue is, is how to see it as such and not interpret it as a way that demotivates you, right? That says, oh, my God, yeah, life sucks, and then you die, so why bother? Because what do we call it? Most people relapse because they get the fuck it that's right. You That's know, right. they get the fuckets. They have this mentality. Well, look, I've been trying to look and look at nothing's working out. I call it the vending machine mentality. You put a quarter in the goddamn vending machine, you pull the lever, you expect to get that damn candy bar, right? Well, guess what? Life isn't going to do that all the time. You can put 50 quarters in that machine. It doesn't mean it's going to give you what you're looking for. Now you're going to get something that you're not looking for that may be even more valuable than what you thought you needed in you. And how how many of those times have we discovered that, Tommy? Mm -hmm. What I thought I needed to be okay had nothing to do with what I really needed to be okay. But it's an amazing process when you start to become aware and conscious
1: of these possibilities. As an antidote to the fuckets, it's, um, can we clarify what you guys meant by um, recovery capital? And then um, would you say that recovery two, 2.0 is a form of that?
0: Alan, you want to speak about recovery capital because you use, oh, the- I
1: I, you know, I just say recovery capital are those,
2: are those assets I can bring to bear to initiate in, in, in this con- conversation to s- sustain my recovery, right? What can I do to sustain it? Well, I, I think outside of us, it's really being able to develop a network, a community of like-minded people that are on this journey together, right? That's where, why you know, you've when you were out here visiting, we were doing that workshop out at Lambertville. I mean, there's a wonderful community that I've connected to out here, of people in recovery, interested, talking about it. You know, so that's one thing. But internally, I think if one really important thing based on what we're talking about today is our level of consciousness. What level of consciousness do I bring to my life today? And does that consciousness include a curiosity? Hmm. Cuz that's the other element in it. You know, if I have that curiosity, I'm going to when when things start to go haywire for me or I'm knocked off balance or I'm in pain, My curiosity goes to what's going on. Let me try to discover what this means. And and more importantly, what do I need to do to develop myself to be able to address what I'm experiencing? Hmm. But how would you talk about, that's what Recovery 2.0 is all about from the way I think about it, Tommy. Is that right?
0: Well, yes. Uh, Well, I'm looking at Recovery 2.0 as a, a kind of a platform that offers vehicles Yes. For accumulating recovery capital.
2: There, that's a great way to say it, man.
0: Uh, so for example, uh, you, you know, here's a, here's a good example. So I'm, I'm speaking to a human being uh, the other day and, um, and they have expressed to me that they're really, really struggling. They're at the beginning of, of they're at the end of their addiction. And, and just at that point where they could be at the beginning of their recovery. Yes. And as I'm talking to this person, I'm asking the questions that I would ask, um, you know, where do you live? Who's around you? Can you get to a meeting? Are you familiar with even what that is? Um, Do you realize there are meetings online also and not just a place you have to go to? Um, Have you ever heard of, you know? And so I go through the questions and the person, the answer to every question is no. I've never heard of this. I don't know what to do. I don't have anybody. I don't know anybody. I'm alone. So let's just say that that is a state of poverty. Ultimately, that is spiritual. That is, that is a uh, in, the, in, the, in the sense of, re- of recovery capital, that person is bankrupt. In this moment, they are bankrupt except for the fact, and this is not about me, but it, except for the fact that they're talking to me because i'm like a banker <laughs> and i've got something that i could offer in terms of the beginning of recovery capital now i can't give that person uh, a 10 million dollar home but i could get that person off the off the poverty line
3: mm-hmm. and
0: i could help them to take a small step into a room that's going to begin to help them accumulate some capital for themselves. Because surely if that person has nobody, it's just them alone. And even God has a hard time um, operating in time and space without people getting involved. And once people get involved, like once a group is there, then a lot can take place. Yeah. You can transmit love, you can support someone, you can provide help. So that's that's how I'm looking at recovery capital. And then recovery 2.0, it, you know. Yoga is a, a, a vehicle which does really, it's the same stated outcome as the 12 steps. 12 steps will create a relationship between you and a power greater than yourself, will create in you a spiritual experience. Pretty much the stated purpose of the steps. Yes, obviously we wanna let go of of alcohol, we wanna let go of uh, whatever our addictions might be so that we can have this experience. Um, But the experience, the outcome is that connection and that sense of wholeness and oneness and and health. So all Recovery 2.0 is really is saying 12 steps, absolutely. Uh, Other recovery modalities, absolutely. Um, yoga, something to treat the body and its challenges. Absolutely. The mind, wow, we seem to need to deal with that. Absolutely. Let's have meditation. Let's learn how to calm the mind. It seems to be a huge responsibility. So it's just basically looking out in the world through my own, as I said, suffering and experience that I need something that can be really effective on the Day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, decade to decade challenges that I am experiencing no, no, as a human being.
2: oh, no, I think the way you're describing that as a platform is is it creates such a great vision of it. Mm. It really is, man. It's a great platform to discover all these different possibilities mm. and okay. and that in that when you know, even Bill said this is that when you take prayer, and meditation, and you combine them, they're synergistic. When you take these ideas you have, one plus one no longer equals two on this stuff. I mean, you start getting one plus one equals 20, one plus one equals 100. I mean, it's amazing the synergy that starts to happen. I found that my you know my journey went through the 12 steps and psychotherapy. That was my path. And what I saw is the synergy between those two was incredible for me, because I finally now found the words to start to describe the pain and suffering I felt.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Never found those with some help. Now, maybe I would have eventually discovered them in the program. But going, you know, I'll never forget my first, my first experience. I So I got clean and sober in 71. So I just celebrated 51 years. So um
0: congratulations man it is that is so epic i can't even believe it it's amazing
2: i can't either it seems like a, it's a whole different lifetime right but i remember right after i got sober my sponsor who's also named tom and um he was going to a lot of these back in the 70s there was all this human potential movement right Everybody was the third force in psychology. Everybody's like excited about personal growth and you know, confronting your shadow and batakas and bean bags were a big deal, man. These foam bats and put a beanbag in front of you and beat the crap out of it and get out all your anger and frustration. And and um, so I got I went to my first marathon weekend. And it was facilitated by an anthropologist named Sasha from the University of Hawaii. And he was a trained gestalt therapist. And it was a, one of these marathon weekends. We started on Friday night and we went as long as we could, got back together Saturday and just kept doing this, right? With these encounter groups and stuff. And I'll never forget the exercise he gave us. You know, he, it was a very simple one. He says, think of someone that you need to say goodbye to. Just think of somebody that you haven't said goodbye to, that you need, you know, you talk about the process of recovery. A big part of it is learning to let go, right? Let go. He says, think of someone you need. So everybody starts to go around. There was about 15 of us in the group. And when it came to me, my father died when I was 11 and I never said goodbye. The minute he heard that, Tommy, he threw a pillow in front of me. He says, say goodbye to your dad. Hmm. That was it, baby. Yeah. The dam broke, Yep, cried, I yelled, I screamed. The room was a padded floor because of the body work they were doing on it. I was on the floor, you know, doing one of these things, pounding my fist and feet on the floor. Mm -hmm. I mean, I worked for about three hours and let go a lifetime of pain and frustration in that three hours. It was really the beginning of of the, the experience I had at the end of it. Um. I would felt so pure, so connected.
0: Mm.
2: I mean, my vision was so clear. Mm. The room, the colors were so bright. It was like when I dropped LSD and I'd have these acute experiences on LSD. And what sold me about recovery, I had that experience, but it was based on, it was natural. There were no drugs that were doing it. It was how I was, my relationship with my experience, with the people in the group. Yes. And so when you talk about connection, man, that's yes. what sold me out. And that's that was so early in my recovery, it propelled me. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still propelled by that one experience. It was that powerful.
0: Yes. Well, it's it's interesting that you bring up Um, such a profound emotional release and psychologically freeing experience and spiritually uh, healing experience. And then you mentioned, and you mentioned dropping LSD. And so right now in our world, as you well know, uh, is an epic, epic resurgence of interest and study and therapy using psychedelic substances. And I truly wish I had a nickel for everyone in 12 step, universe who came to me and said you know tommy what do you think about you know microdosing? what do you think about psilocybin what's your view on ayahuasca and plant medicines well how about lsd let's go back to the old crowd favorite you know like (laughs) what do you think and i i'm um i'm lecturing on monday night about this topic of psychedelics and, and recovery from addiction uh but i i i uh i just thought i'd bring it up here i'd love to get your thoughts if you don't mind me interviewing you for a minute Um, because, you know, um, you and I share a few things. And one of those things is that we took psychedelic drugs. And that was for me, I can speak, I can say it was a profound experience. I surely don't regret it. Uh, At the same time, I can say it, you know, after all the psychedelic use I did for many, many years, um, I feel like I learned and saw many things. And I also became a severe, severe heroin and cocaine addict uh, later, it didn't seem to be the magic bullet I would have hoped that it would have been for me. But um, anyway, I'm I sure you have many thoughts on this, especially in your field, because you you must come upon it in conversations with your colleagues.
2: Yeah, there's there is a big resurgence of this, as you know. Um So, you know, there's a lot of different aspects to it. Like you said, we used LSD early on in our life. It didn't launch us into a path of, of, you know, self-awareness and self-actualization. And somehow we were able to avoid our addiction as a result of the profound experiences. Mm -hmm. I mean, the one thing that it did for me, but it was... It was lost, I think, because I didn't have the consciousness wrapped around it to really integrate it into my life was to see that there are so many possibilities between what I think are possibilities. Mm. So it really introduced me to that there was a, a reality, if you will, a consciousness that was available to me that I didn't know how to tap into on my own, that the drugs did facilitate tapping into that. Hmm. Now, I say this about recovery is, isn't that the problem at the heart of the problem? At least for me, it was. I kept turning to drugs for that freedom. When I drank, when I used other drugs, I had a sense of personal freedom. I was that untethered self that I talked about, but it was short-lived. And not only was it short-lived, it was, it tethered me in a stronger way. It didn't release those bonds of self and addiction. It intensified them. It, you know, if you think of it as a cable, the cable kept getting bigger and bigger and attaching me to that I needed something other than me to be okay well, I don't know how you get around that, Tommy, with this stuff. Hmm. So if, if I understand that it can have these profound experiences, people can get a lot that there's research showing that it's had a big impact on, I I think areas like depression, it seems to be very valuable for, um, but I'm still not sold on its really, its value for those of us in addiction. Now, I know there's all kinds of anecdotal evidence. People on that go do ayahuasca say, oh my God, it's turned my life around. But I've also worked with people that went and did ayahuasca, and now they're back out, and many of them have died from an overdose. So there's anecdotes all over the place. Yeah. I think that I think that that looking for a silver bullet is part of our problem. I don't think there's a silver bullet. I think it takes a lot of consistent effort, experimentation, grinding, suffering. See I I'm not I don't want to move away from my suffering anymore. I want to move towards it. Mm-hmm. For me, a lot of this stuff is still based on let's move away from our suffering. Let's not move into it. So I that those are some of my initial responses to that.
0: Yeah, huge. Uh, well I, I cannot, we're on the same page. Yeah. We're on the same page and I'm I'm uh mostly I think I'll begin on Monday um by saying something to the effect of you want me to have a position. Yeah. And you want me to validate my position and you want my position to be so compelling to you that you're you're moved into this wonderful space beyond any doubt beyond any fear and it isn't (laughs) possible
2: so well said man you really that's a wonderful way to start out your talk
0: you know i mean because isn't
2: that what they're looking for man i listen it's what we all look for all the time is there certainty tell me the one decision i can make that i'm that this will be it right this is the answer
0: tell me what to do tell me what to do and and you know If there's anything we've learned lately, uh, gosh, I've been looking at this issue of um, abortion rights and and Roe v. Wade and and a lot of people in, in the world of recovery, you know, when these things happen out in the world, they can really use those things as an excuse for really poor behavior and poor reactions on their part. And so, I really got into it with somebody and, I, and, and I, something came from it. And so I thought, I thought that was maybe relevant to bring up here, if that's okay with you. Yeah,
2: please, please.
0: Uh, on the one side of this uh, debate, you have a group of people who grounded in their religion feel that this is about the sanctity of life. Yes. This is about uh, respect of their God, their religion. So these are heavy deep, profound ideas for that group of people. Yes. On the other side of this debate, you have a group of people who feel that this is about the safety of women, reproductive rights, rights of the individual to choose. And those are heavy, deep concepts also. And so what, I, what I've what i come to understand in, in so far in my life, if there's anything I understand, it's that there is no point in arguing. Yeah. That both sides have their reasoning. It is it is solid. It makes sense to them. I don't think anyone wins anyone over.
1: Yeah. Um that's certainly true.
0: I I I think that you know, the the space to be is in an ex in to a certain extent is one has to determine for oneself what feels aligned and then one has to live that truth if we can be open to further revelation as we've always said more will be revealed if we can be open to further revelation maybe even changing our mind over years that's just a wonderful way to be and you know we i love the the aspect of 12 step recovery where we say you know we don't we don't argue anything anymore. We don't. We don't get involved in outside issues. That's right. So, um, something about that and this issue, and you know, I just see how people want yes. to be right. Yeah, that's right. So badly, and that's an addiction. Well, it
2: is. And but you know, like you said, it's at both sides of that, and of course,
1: there's all people on that line between that continuum. Well there but, isn't a, there isn't a asymmetry I just think it's important to reiterate that an asymmetry between the positions cuz one's it, minoritarian it, it, and the other isn't. is see,
2: Well that's the interesting thing it's about life see and it's about respecting life and choice and stuff like that that's that's the interesting thing there is a way that you could say they're on the same page right they're just looking at being on that page in a very very different way it's like two parents that get together that talk of that have a kid that's in trouble. One parent has one idea, the other parent has another idea. Well, they're both coming from a place of we love our child, we want to try to figure out the best thing in the world, and you know what? What you captured—funny—we talked about this on the show. There is a group of people that have come together that it's called Better Arguments. And what they do is they go for the position that you just talked about. They say, we need, if we're going to be able to bring, to become the United States, we have to do it by respecting the other person's belief, even if it's very different than ours. We have to just understand what it means to them. It doesn't have to mean that to us, but we can understand what it means to them. And I think if you truly understand it and look at it from their point of view, you see, like you said- It makes sense for them. yeah. But we're not going to get everybody to agree to the same thing. That's the issue, right? There's got to be, my mentor, Dr. Kempler said, in a healthy relationship, there always has to be room for two people. It can't be one person's way or the other. Mm. There has to be room for two. And so that on a personal basis, in terms of our romantic, our love, Relationships, our love interest, is relevant, but it's also true when you start to move beyond that into our society.
1: Mm. Well, right, Tommy, and I think the principal thing probably that you would get at with that person is that you can't, in a recovery context, you can't lose yourself um, in that debate and uh, get away from kind of right that principal concern of uh, getting well and uh, staying sober and not uh, falling into nihilism.
0: Yes. It, it's great what you just said. I, I think it comes down to the question, you know, what ultimately is the goal here? And for me, say, from a yogic standpoint, the goal is transparency of mind. I need at all costs to keep a clear head, to be focused on the the ultimate goal of, of realizing and living from the divine essence within me which is within you and within everybody else. And if I allow events in the world to knock me off of my centeredness, then what happens from there is karma. Meaning I react to the world from a place of uncenteredness. Mm -hmm. I put into effect, uh, I put into movement, a train of circumstances that came from not centeredness, but my reactivity to someone else's reactivity. Yes. And now you have the history of, of the world. <laughs> and That's as right. I look out, That's it right. hasn't gone well. It hasn't gone well. We, we have nearly destroyed each other and our planet. And, and this is in the back or front of everybody's mind today. That's right. How are we gonna get through this? And so from the yogic standpoint, this idea of keeping transparency of mind and not arguing, and allowing people to be while consciously and, you know, uh, uh, energetically working towards what feels correct to us um, seems to be the way.
2: Yeah, so, so boy, Patrick, I think you could probably hear all the the overlap between that position and like the concept of emotional center of gravity. Absolutely. We talk about keeping your emotional center of gravity over your two feet, right? How do you get it back when you're knocked off balance? What are the things you do to recover your balance, right? Those things, as well as, you know, emotional sobriety has a lot to do with understanding ourselves, this transparency of mind. I love that phrase, Mm -hmm. Tommy. That's so relevant to this thing, is to being aware, and back to this curiosity thing, is how am I thinking about this? You know, I I love Virginia Satir. She said something so brilliant. She goes, whenever I meet a problem, and this is one of the the pioneers of family therapy and self-esteem work, right? She goes, whenever I encounter a problem, I draw a big circle and I put my name in the middle. (laughs) She goes, then I start asking myself the following questions. I go into an inquiry. I say, what part of this problem is being created by the meaning I'm giving to the experience I'm having? What part of this problem is being created by my expectations? And she goes through a whole list of these things. But the last one that she she mentions is brilliant. She goes, what part of my problem is related to my lack of faith in my ability to cope with this? Wow. Wow. I never thought of asking that question about myself. And it's such a powerful question that a lot of this, my reaction to this might come from, I don't know how to deal with it. And then, like you said, when we come to a program, well, that's okay. I don't need to know. But see, moving away from that consciousness that says, I have to have the answer if I want to be a good person. If I'm going to be okay, I have to know the answer to this. And to admit I don't is humiliating. Well, mm-hmm. Wait a minute. Does it have to be humiliating? Is it okay for me to be ignorant and not know? Well, not in my old consciousness, it wasn't. My pride was that I knew. Now my pride today is being able to not know. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a shift, right? We talk well, about that 180 degree shift, man.
0: It's a, it's a monumental shift, and what a move toward freedom. That's there all- it
2: is. Right on. You right know. on. Man. What a move towards freedom. Mm. Well, God, man, what a wonderful, wonderful hour we've just spent talking, man. I just, I love you, Tommy. It's love wonderful to have you, you here, man. Where can we tag tap into that talk? Is that open to the public? This Monday night. Yes. Uh,
0: 5 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, anybody's welcome. Just come. Uh, there's a, a registration link, uh, which I can just put in the chat bar right here for you if you'd like.
2: Okay. And Patrick will Please. put it in the show notes.
0: Um. If you're putting this up before Monday, otherwise people can catch the replay later on, on um, I believe, on uh, 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 YouTube. We'll just put it up there after. Okay. Um, let me see here for a second.
2: Well, It'll be up before Monday night, so we'll be able to catch that. But we'll also let people know that they can catch it later.
0: It's just a free discussion and exploration of okay. psychedelics and recovery from addiction.
1: Tommy, you have an effect where I feel lighter after talking to you for a bit. So. Oh,
0: that's amazing, man. Thank you for saying that.
1: So nice to meet you. So nice Great. to meet you, Patrick. We'll see you next week on Emotional Sobriety.
3: Okay, guys. Blessings. Tinge your life. Tinge your myth. Cultivate your narrative with whomever you're with. Then, with glass and hand and children on no one knee, bring some stories. Bring your stories back to me. It ain't a crime to be a human. Never be ashamed to be yourself Rest assured that whatever you're doing Will entertain me like nobody else So here's to us, my old friends Until it's time to drink the wine and break the bread again With glass in hand and children on one knee. Bring some stories Bring your story back to me